Make sure we don't have a few more coming in the door. <laughs> They're closing the door. Right? The door of the ark is closing. <laughs> Judgment is nigh. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. I have the pleasure of introducing our uh, speaker this morning. As I said last week, he is our uh, a candidate for our pastoral position. Uh, this is Noah Zobrist, and uh, Noah is here with his uh, wife, Courtney, and his daughter, Sadie. You'll get to meet them later, actually, after the 10 o'clock service. They're going to be in the great room over here, so please go interact, go ask questions, meet them, get to know them, and I think Noah's going to have some time at the end, Lord willing, to take some questions and answers and that sort of thing, so when he's done with his lesson, if you have questions about what he's just taught or even personal questions, he's willing to answer those as well. But Noah is a recent graduate of Shepherd's Theological Seminary, a institution that I hold in very high regard. Uh, so he has had the luxury, just like many in this room have had, of sitting in the classroom with Dr. Bookman and, uh, and others like that. And so <clears throat> Noah is here investigating what the Lord has for him for the future. So uh, he's going to talk to us this morning, teach us on, I think, something related to discipleship, because that's kind of one of our focuses in terms of this new position. Uh, so let's welcome Noah. Noah, give us the word. Thank you all for that, that welcome. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Um, we visited one time before, but I've been uh, listening to sermons off and on just as I have time. Um, now I, uh, I finished my degree, um, which has just been a, a wonderful blessing for my wife and I uh, to be able to uh, have some time. Um, seminary has uh, taken a lot of our time, and uh, we're grateful to now be able to consider what, what's next for us. Um, so I think uh, I've got uh, a picture of us. My wife, Courtney, is here with me. Um, and that's our daughter, Sadie. Uh, she's three and a half, and um, we're, we're very grateful to, uh, to be able to be with you all because we see a lot of, uh, a lot of good happening here. Um, there's a lot of potential at this church, and we just want to jump in and, and plug into it. We've heard so many great things. I know people who are, are not connected to this church that have given me wonderful testimonies of the things that this church has done through its history and what it's currently doing. Um, and so Courtney and I are just thrilled to be able to be considered for this, um, and we're, we're really excited, and we want to know what the Lord is going to do for us, um, but we're, we're hoping that we'll get to partner here and serve here uh, with you all. Um, but today, as David mentioned, I, I want to be in the area of discipleship, but it's going to be a little bit, um, a little bit different than the typical um, discipleship text that we're in. Um, this may not be the appropriate uh, topic for uh, a first time, but I'm going to talk about disobedience today. <laughs> know that this has nothing to do with you as individuals and only my, my heart and what, I, what the Lord has been teaching me through this. But um, I want to uh, talk about three warnings that we receive in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you want to turn there. Um, we're going to spend our time in Hebrews chapter 3 discussing what the writer has there for his original audience and then us uh, today. Uh, but as we get going, I'd, I'd like to show you a picture of, of my daughter just a few years, or I guess it was maybe just a year or so ago. Um, she is uh, very full of personality. Um, she's got spunk. Um, I suppose that's the nice way to put it. Um, but as any of you who have children or have had young children in the past, you know that that's part of the growing process is teaching them how to be obedient. 
Um, and they start out so cute. They start out like perfect little bundles of joy, and they look up at you with their big eyes, and, and they smile at you, and you think, oh, I missed it. There's no sin in this one. <laughs> I thought that. She's perfect. There's never going to be a time in, in this child's life where she's going to rebel against me. Um, that, was, that dream was shattered very quickly. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. But um, as, as they grow, um, even their, even their little, little, little rebellions as, as small children, you're kind of like, wow, they don't really know any better. But then there's that moment where it clicks, where they're holding their spaghetti plate over their tray at their, at their high chair, and you look at them and you say, no. And you see the recognition in their face. And then they just look straight at you and do this. <laughs> That's when I knew. I did not win the lottery. Um, even when I took this picture, I remember this memory very vividly. We were walking around. Uh, we live across the street from really nice baseball fields, and we were just wandering when there was no one there. And I, I said, Sadie, look at me. And I had, my, I had my, uh, my phone out to take the picture. And, you know, you can take live pictures. And if you looked at this live, you could see it. But she's kind of, she's walking away from me. And I say, Sadie, look at me take, to take a picture. She goes, who, me? <laughs> look at that face. She's like, what, Me? That's, so, that's the attitude that we get to work with every day, and it's only gotten better. Um, but as, as, we, as she's grown, it's been a good opportunity for my wife and I, and many of you can identify with this as well, for you to grow personally. Um, and so, as we, as we talk through uh, this concept of disobedience today, I want to look through uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and look at some examples uh, that he gives, or an example he gives about avoiding disobedience. And the, the, first exa- or the first warning we receive is a warning to learn from past failures. Um, we'll see in this, in this passage, and, and if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's almost like a, a series of sermons. Um, and this passage specifically, as I've studied it, it feels very much like that, where he's going to quote uh, from a text in the Old Testament, and then he's going to uh, explain that or exposit that to his readers, and then he's going to give a little bit of application at the end. In just a few verses, um, he's going to essentially preach a sermon to us. Uh, and so as, as we look through this, I want to I use that example of, for how we can learn. Um, but learning from past failures, I, I think of uh, when I was growing up, I, I'm the youngest of, uh, of four, uh, five siblings. I'm the youngest of five, so I have four older siblings. Um, and my wife has three older siblings. She's the youngest of four. And um, all of them were, were helpful to us in one way or another. Courtney's siblings were a little older and a little kinder to her. So they, uh, they, were, they were telling her what not to do. They would say, hey, learn from my mistake. Don't do this. My siblings evidently didn't like me very much. And so they just made me figure it out on my own. So I tried to watch them and do not, not do what they were doing. Um, but that's essentially what we're going to see here that the author is trying to get us to do is look at what Israel has done and don't replicate that. Don't do what Israel has done. So since we're jumping right in the middle of this text, let's just catch a, a little bit of the, the context here. Uh, and uh, the theme of the book of Hebrews is um, Christ is greater. And throughout the book, he's going to set up various 
uh, comparisons between Christ and other people, Christ in the temple, Christ in the tabernacle, and always Christ is greater. And so in chapter 1 and 2, he talks about the angels and that Christ is greater than the angels. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, having become a Christ, having become much superior to angels, as the name uh, he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And then the, that reminds me of a text in Ephesians. It says, Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is greater. Then as we move through chapter 3, he's going to set up Moses, the greatest of all of the Hebrews. And he's going to say, Christ is greater which is shocking to this audience. Consider the audience is the Hebrews, the people who held Moses as the greatest of their prophets. And the writer here is going to say, but Jesus Christ is greater. And so we see this comparison here. And then as we move into our text here today, there's a transition. uh, And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and I know you're a a well-taught bunch And when you come to uh, these grammatical categories like a therefore, you know to look forward. And so if I could summarize these first six verses in chapter chapter 3, essentially, we have a confident hope because of Christ. Because Christ is greater. Moses was faithful as a servant of the house, it says. Christ is faithful as a son, the inheritor of the house. Christ is greater than Moses. And since we have a confident hope, it says in verse 6, therefore do not have an unbelieving heart. Listen as I read. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This, uh, this passage that he's quoting from is from Psalm 95, but there's a couple interesting things uh, found within this quote. Um, first of all, though it is a book to the Hebrews, he's quoting from the Greek translation of Psalm 95, rather than quoting into Greek uh, directly what the Hebrew says. Um, and there's a couple of interesting notes found within uh, the, uh, the difference in Psalm 95 that we'll find. So if you want, uh, flip over there with me in Psalm 95. Uh, and you can see some of the differences. I'll, I'll try and point them out here quickly. Um, but as, as you're flipping, uh, consider the fact that this Psalm 95 is also a, uh, a theology or, a, or an overview of events that had happened prior uh, in Israel's history. So Psalm 95 isn't really the, the initial text. There's other texts behind this that he's pointing back to. So why didn't the writer of Hebrews just immediately quote uh, from either Exodus 17 or Numbers 20? He could have done that, but instead he chose Psalm 95, um, which I believe he's, he's not specifically speaking to what happened exactly in that generation and something similar is happening in this generation. He's really using it as a theological warning. This concept of rebellion that these people went through. But if you'll look at verse 8 of Psalm 95, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and Massah. Don't harden your hearts as in those two locations. Whereas, if you look back in Hebrews, it says, 
don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the Greek text behind what uh, the writer of Hebrews is pulling from is using more of a dynamic translation, not the word for word. Um, and, and he's pulling from that because he wants to draw the theological connection to rebellion, disobedience. But then let's, let's understand what happened at Meribah and Massah and, and the, the nation of Israel, what they did. What was their rebellion? What was their wickedness? If you'll flip back again to Exodus 17 uh, quickly. As, uh, as I've listened to you guys turn in your Bibles, I, um, I love the sound of pages turning. Um, and I appreciate that. I, I serve currently in a college ministry. Most of them don't have paper Bibles, or at least they don't bring them to church. They use their phones. Not against using technology. I love technology. I'm currently teaching from technology, so I'm not against it. But it just, there's something about the sound of pages turning as you, as you go through Scripture. But Exodus 17, um, in verse 7, it says uh, that... Um, that he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah. Uh, Massah meaning testing and Meribah meaning quarreling or embitterment. Um, and, and why is that? Essentially what's happened, and you, you're probably familiar, the people got into the wilderness. It's a desert and they were thirsty. They had no water. They hadn't found water. And the people started quarreling or fighting or arguing with Moses saying, find water for us. Why is there no water? Wouldn't it just be better if we were to die in Egypt? Why would we come here uh, to die in the wilderness? So Mo, they're, they're essentially trying to, to have a coup against Moses. And so Moses goes to the Lord and he says, speak to the rock. And, and so the rock brings forth water. And so the people get their water. But consider where we're at in the story of Exodus. Um, this is probably less than two months after God had brought them out of Egypt by those, those ten plagues and across the Red Sea. The people within two months had already lost their faith. They had already lost their trust in God and what he was capable of doing. And then 40 years later, if you'll turn uh, to Numbers chapter 20, um, we'll spend a little bit less time here, but essentially the same thing happens again. The people are, are still in the wilderness. They've had 40 years of wandering, and then they can't find water again. So they come at Moses the same way they did 40 years prior. They've already, because of that generation's uh, disobedience and their rebellion towards God, they've already watched all of their, their family dying off, that previous generation dying off. And now we come, same exact thing happening. And Moses is pulling out his hair, hair likely frustrated with these people. How could they continue in rebellion like this? And so he strikes the rock. But God didn't ask him to strike the rock. He told him to speak to the rock. So Moses was then in rebellion. And because of that, Moses and Aaron were no longer capable of going into the promised land. That whole generation, save two men, got to go into the, uh, did not get to go into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua were the only ones that got to go. Not even Moses. The greatest of the Hebrews got to go into the promised land. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll continue looking at our passage there. That's, that's our context. That's what the writer is bringing to these people. He's told them to look at this generation. Look at what they've done. They've tested God. They rebelled against Moses, God's chosen leader. And they've continued in sin. Look at these people. But even uh, the fact that uh, it says that 
back in, back in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Hebrews, we're going back to that psalm quote, which is essentially the theological summary, right? It says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Remember that, that word harden. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, a summary statement of what these people had done in the wilderness. On the day of testing, where your fathers put me to the test and they had seen my works for 40 years, that whole generation was full of rebellion. And that's why they didn't get to enter the promised land. Their children entered the promised land. So then God says through the psalmist and now to us through the the writer of Hebrews, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And it's interesting in this this quote here, we we, uh, get the the word that where in the original text in uh, Greek it says this. That's the pronoun that we get. This generation. The writer of Hebrews, again in, in verse 7, if you look back, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. Not said, says. And then he, he says, this generation. He's trying to make it appropriate to his people, who he's writing to. Just because this was going on in Psalm 95 and it was going on in Exodus and Numbers, doesn't mean that we are incapable. We are still just as capable. And the Holy Spirit, who's the author, He's not, he's not attributing it to a psalmist, not attributing it to himself. The Holy Spirit, what he says was effective then, it's effective now, the writer of Hebrews, and it's effective to us today. So we need to put ourselves here. What about this generation? So then God continues in verse 10 and said, uh, he was provoked and he said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That generation was kept from going into the promised land. God promised that to them, and they rebelled. And so only two got to go. The rest of the nation got to go, or the rest of their children got to go. The generation, even Moses and Aaron, did not get to enter the promised land. Even their heroes, they fail. Again, Moses is not greater than Christ. Christ is greater than Moses. So then a second warning that we see as we continue on. A warning to be alert to present danger. He says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another today, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is an explicit warning he's given right here in chapter, or verse 12. This is the beginning of his explanation to his people. The writer of Hebrews has gone from his text, and he's starting to preach. He's starting his message, and he says, take care. It's explicit. Watch out. It's a stronger command than just take care. My wife and I are currently living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that's, it's southern, and this is, a, this is a command to all believers. And in, in the Greek, there's a specific you plural. Um, and in the south, there's a you plural. I didn't adapt it, but you could read it in the southern Greek, all y'all best watch out. <laughs> watch out. But I would probably say, say something more like, watch out, you guys. That's more of a Midwestern thing is the you guys. I don't, can I get a witness at that? Anybody say you guys? Okay, all right. These are my people. These are my people from the Midwest. I don't fit in there. It's too many trees, not enough cornfields. Okay. Watch out. And it's explicit to believers. 
brothers. This is directly to believers to protect us from sin, to protect them from sin. But listen to what we're in danger of. What leads us astray? What leads us to fall away from a living God? An evil, unbelieving heart. He doesn't say Satan. We hear that in 1 Peter, where he says, Watch out, for your adversary the devil prowls around, seeking one he might desire. He's not saying Satan isn't present, but who's responsible? Satan can attack us. Temptation can attack us. Who's responsible? It's our heart. We need to protect our hearts to keep us from falling away. And that falling away could be some sort of an intentional, like it's become vogue now to deconstruct your faith and tell everybody about it online. Joshua Harris most recently did that. I know people personally that have done that. So either it's an intentional, I used to believe this, but I don't anymore. Or it could be unintentional. could be some sort of a drift. And I think we see that within churches today. Why are so many young people leaving churches? Because they don't believe it. It's not genuine for them. We have to be careful because of our own unbelieving, evil, wicked, sinful hearts. Even after salvation, we're, we're in danger of this, right? He says, brothers, we're in danger of falling away. Not in danger of losing salvation. Not in danger of someone who is genuinely saved, like a, like a Joshua Harris who was a pastor. I don't know where their hearts are. I don't know where these people are that drift away. But we're responsible for our own hearts. We're responsible to take care, to watch out. And then how do we do that? We're supposed to be alert. That's essentially what he says in verse 12. Then he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another. Urge one another on in holiness. This is, it's a positive thing in, in some contexts where you're encouraging someone to continue pressing forward, continue moving forward in, in self-control, protecting yourself from sin. But also, it can be negative. It can be hard. Exhortation carries that idea of correction. You encourage someone positively, but then you also may need to correct one another. As you start to see someone drifting, you correct them, you bring them back. It's difficult, but we need each other. What's, what I see here in this passage is a community. We need one another. There are nearly 60 one another commands in Scripture. How do we do that? By being together. We do that by being in the church, being involved, being in person. I understand you guys have small groups. That's, I think that's where this starts. It starts in the small group. It's hard to get to know somebody on a really deep level on this, on this big stage, the bigger group of people. It's hard to get into some of this stuff. But when you're together in someone's home, you confess sin to one another. You open up. It requires you to be open, to pour your heart out. You need one another. We need each other. But it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable dealing with sin, getting into the mire with somebody. Consider the image of the iron sharpening iron, right? We use that a lot. But what happens when you sharpen a blade? Parts are, are pulled off. The rust has to be removed. I can imagine that that's a painful process. Been a part of that painful process. 
when you have to remove something. Or a sculptor who starts with a large slab of marble has to take stuff away. Consider ourselves like slabs of marble when we get saved. And Christ is the sculptor who's chipping away all of the things that are not like him. And he's constantly conforming us into his own image. Not our own image, not us. Not trying to make disciples of Noah. David's not trying to make disciples of David. Disciples of Christ. But that's a painful process. Things are going to be lost. And I put this silly image up here of, of Matthew chapter 7. Um, if you would, just turn with me, because I want to I look at this. Obviously, this obscures some of our passage, but <laughs> that's the point, right? We're supposed to judge one another. And we're doing a bad job in the 21st century of uh, the United States of reading this passage appropriately. We're judging one another. That's what the constant sharpening does. It's, we're, we're engaging in this practice. But it says, as I read Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you not be judged. And that's where it ends. So let's move on. <laughs> Doesn't. Verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Judge not that you not be judged. Because the same standard you use for other people is going to be used for you. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying be careful when you judge. When you judge, judge with righteousness and judge with purity, holiness. Look at yourself first. This is common in marriage. Um, This is something that I've had to learn over the process of the six and a half years my wife and I have been married, um, that I have to look at myself first. Because... Typically, uh, when there's a, uh, I heard someone recently describe an argument or a fight as uh, intense community. <laughs> yeah, intense, intense relationship, right? That's just, you're just living in community with your spouse, but it's intense. <laughs> so as I've learned, I've had to realize that I got to look at myself first because I'm probably wrong. And if I go to my wife and say, look what you did. How could you do that to me? But she's like, dude, this is not my problem. <laughs> then, I, then I look the fool, right? But if I look at myself first and say, look, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I should not have done that. That softens her much easier than if I come combative. My wife and I are very competitive, and so if I come at her like that, it's, you know, dukes are up. We're going <laughs> to... The, the community will be very intense. Um, so we, we must confront one another. We must deal with sin. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 18, where it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of community? What's the purpose of confrontation? Is it to be right and to get that person out your doors? Purpose is restoration. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Being careful 
that you not fall into the same traps. Ephesians 4.2 says, restore with humility. So when you go to someone to judge them, when you go to judge them, make sure that you've looked at yourself and you're approaching with humility, gentleness, and then remove the speck from your brother's eye. And you've gained your brother by doing that. So we must deal with our sin. This is where the, the dangers are. But if we don't, what happens? It says at the end of uh, this verse, what happens? That you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You're hardened. I mentioned earlier, in one of our earlier verses, it talks about that hardening. Uh, the Greek word here is scleruno or scleros. Maybe you hear the sclerosis in that, which is the hardening of the connective tissue in your body. Your body becomes less responsive to what your brain is telling it to do. I've been in seminary for four years. I did Bible college for two years before that. Um, So my hands are no longer quite as stout as they used to be. I played baseball. I lifted weights. I had lots of calluses. Um, And recently with my father-in-law, we were chopping out a bush um, while we were on vacation because that's how my father-in-law does vacation. He likes to work. (laughs) So we were in Florida at my wife's aunt's house chopping down a bush. So I, after I finished doing that, having been in seminary for so long, I had seven blisters and two blood blisters because my hands are soft, my hands are weak. And the point here is, it's repetitive use that builds up the calluses. It's a repetitive lifting of weights or playing baseball. I had calluses because of swinging a bat. It's that, that constant friction. So at first, when we get into a sin, it, we're sensitive to it. We don't like it. We do feel the Holy Spirit. But then if we ignore it, we continue on in pursuing that sin, we become less responsive. We hear the Holy Spirit less. Eventually, it's just commonplace. It doesn't even matter. I don't even think about it. That's what's happening to our souls when we allow sin to fester. And I love that he says the deceitfulness of sin there back in in Hebrews chapter 3. The deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that just how it is? That's just, it seems so good. We want it so bad. But it's not. It seems good, but as soon as you do it, you're immediately guilty. You immediately wish you hadn't. That, that feeling isn't quite as good as you were hoping. Putting, putting my spouse down, putting my wife down, didn't feel quite as good. I thought winning that argument, I mean, intense fellowship, I thought winning that would, would make me feel better. It doesn't. But eventually we get hardened to that reality. We need to be careful, but we also want to seek to restore. That's why we're, that's why we're doing community. That's why we confront one another. Because we don't want to live in disobedience. Now, our final warning here in Hebrews chapter 3, the third warning take hold of a future confidence. It says in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This points back to verse 6 that warns a very similar thing before we get into this, that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our hope. Holding fast to the end 
So this essentially forms the ground that we're supposed to do verses 12 through 13 on. This is the, the summary and the, the, the foundation of what we're supposed to be doing is that we have confidence in Christ. Therefore, we need to live our lives in purity. Therefore, we need to avoid sin. We need to confront one another when necessary. And I, I, I glazed past it, but I, I love it, and I want to come back to it in verse 13. It says, while it's called today. It's a continual process. I love having a text like this, because when you read it, really no interpreting that. While it's called today. What day is that? Every day. Every day is today. Tomorrow's tomorrow, but I'm not worried about tomorrow. I got to deal with what's going on today. So while it's called today, don't be caught up by sin. Don't fall into disobedience. So we hold our confidence every day firm to the end. We have to have endurance. We aren't saved and perfected. We aren't saved and taken up. We have to have a confidence. Our confidence is in Christ's resurrection and the future hope that we have in being with him. We've got to continue on with that. That faith needs to have an endurance that pushes on toward the end. And then he reminds us again in verse 15, as it is said, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The idea of hearing is that we're not just noticing what he's saying. We obey. Now, if you hear his voice, that's what he's saying. If you hear his voice, what I'm saying to you is God speaking. If you hear this and obey it, don't harden your hearts. Obey. It's bringing us back to that Psalm 95. So then as he concludes, this is kind of our application section here. In verses 16 through 19, this is the application that the the author is drawing in his abbreviated sermon. And he's using uh, rhetorical questions. It's almost like he's interrogating the audience, really trying to drive in this point that he's making. Listen along as I read verses 16 through 18. It says, For who who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? He builds on his questions, and it reaches a fever pitch where he gets to that last question. Who was it? Wasn't it the ones who rebelled? Verse 19, here's your application point. So we see that they were unable to enter rest because of unbelief. I think, I think the point he's making is not, well, they didn't. Bummer. The point is, this is an implicit command. If they didn't because of unbelief, and there's possibility for unbelief for us, it can happen to us too. This is just as applicable to us today in Plainfield, Indiana, as it was to these Hebrews scattered about in the early church. Just as applicable. We need to be so careful. It's really easy for me, maybe, maybe you can identify with this, but it's really easy for me to look at Israel and say, how could they mess it up so badly? How could they do that? They were looking at the pillar of fire, the pillar of the cloud. God split the sea for them. How could they, what? I have the Holy Spirit within me. I do the same exact things. 
don't be arrogant. Don't think that it can't happen to you. Don't think that it can't happen in Plainfield Bible Church, a church that's been so faithful for so long. We need each other. And that's what keeps it from going on. That's what keeps us from falling away, from drifting off. We hold fast because we're together. We're encouraging, we're exhorting one another. We need each other. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. I'm, again, reminded of my sweet daughter, whom I love, but of a story where I, I was telling her not to do something. She had opened the cupboards, and she was pulling things out, and I said, no, Sadie, stop. No. She kept pulling things out of the cupboard. No. Got down on her level, right into her ear, and said, no. She looked at me, like, with a side eye, pulled the cereal straight down. And I was on her level, so I just said, Why are you the way that you are? I know why. Because she's me. That's why. And I was telling, I was rehearsing this story to my friend and mentor. He was my boss at the time. He was the college pastor while I was under him for three years. I was telling him, I told him that story, and I was like, expecting him to be like, dude, kids are the worst. And it stinks for you. But in his wisdom... He looked at me and he said, man, isn't that just how we are to God? I was like, you stink. (laughs) That is not what I wanted to hear today. That's not what I wanted to hear, what I needed to hear. We can't, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect, but we also can't live like we don't have any capability of rebelling against God. We need each other. Look to one another. Encourage each other. So quickly, how do we protect ourselves from this this capability that we have within us to drift? We have to learn from the past. Learn from Israel, right? The writer of Hebrews was doing it. Why can't we? Learn from Hebrews. Learn from yourself. We all make mistakes. We all do silly things. It's, I've heard it said that um, only a fool doesn't learn from his own mistakes, but a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Look around. Learn from each other. Tell, tell, your, tell other people around you. Tell the people in your small group. Tell them what you've done and how to do it better. Find a younger couple. Tell them how to avoid some of the pitfalls of marriage. Find a kid in the church. Talk about how they can avoid the pitfalls of going into school in a world that we're in, going to university. Do that together. We need each other. Be actively engaged in a community. You can only do this. What, I, what I've described, you can only do if you know other people and they know you. Because if they don't know you, they can't confront you on anything. So you've got to be open. Got to have some, some freedom to let other, other people say stuff that you're not going to like. And you might respond like I did. I don't want to hear that. But eventually, you'll come around. Because you need those people. You love those people. You're a family here. We are the family of God. We need to look out for each other. I know even though my siblings didn't tell me how to be, you know, how to avoid some of these pitfalls when I was younger, I know that if anything happened to me, they would have been the first ones to step up. Do that for each other. 
Stand in the gap. We are, we're fighting a war together. If we're not aware of the spiritual battle that we're fighting, we're just going to drift off into disobedience, sin, becoming like the world. Stand in the gap together. Lock arms. Fight. Don't give in to sin. And we can only do that if we have hope. And we do. We have the only hope there is. Paul says if Jesus didn't raise, what are we doing? We're the most to be pitied. But he did. And since he did, we've got hope. So don't let yourself drift off. Don't let somebody else drift off. Grab them. Shake them. Bring each other into family. Commitment to Christ. Under Christ. Do it together. Let me pray and then we can, we can do some questions. God, you are so good. So gracious to us. So merciful that when we look at you and continue to do our sin, we continue to fall into sin, that you love us. You don't look at us and ask us why we are the way that you, we are, but you, you care for us. You bring other people into our lives to encourage us and exhort us when we need it. God, I pray that we would be a family together, that we would serve one another, care for one another, and love each other. Father, we're so grateful for your sending your son that we have a hope that there is found nowhere else. Hope in the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, well, um, if you'd like to ask questions, you're welcome now to do that. Um, I'll try and repeat them for anybody else who might not hear it or, or the people online. I don't know if they're, this is going to be part of it or not, but... Um, you can ask me anything. All right. I would say no. There's no. So the question was, some people use programs to implement things like this, like discipleship. Some people just want to build it into the culture of the church. Um, is there a right or wrong way? No. I think you need both. There's a place for both. Um, you need to have some sort of a structure for people to, um, to find those people who maybe don't have a discipleship relationship and you haven't connected with them there. But also, you need to train your people to be looking out for those things and, and catch those people before they need it. But yeah, it's, there's no right or wrong. Scripture doesn't give us, it just says do it. It just says, teach what I've taught you to other faithful people who are going to teach that to other faithful people, and so on. They can be personal questions too. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm open to that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He's asking if um, the original languages, um, Greek and Hebrew, are important to how I study. Um, yes. I, I love, like, that's part of the education that I received, and I received it from some really um, gifted, uh, godly men um, that trained me to continue studying. Um, I do that a lot. I preached from the ESV today, which I think you guys use the NASB. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that you can gain just as much from an English translation as you can. Like, the writer of Hebrews was using a Greek translation, not inspired, just a, a translation into that language. And I think primarily because Greek was the most broadly used language at that time. It was the Bible of the, the early church, was the, the Greek um, of the Old Testament. But for me, I, I appreciate getting into it and looking at the details. And I, I threw some Greek and Hebrew words up there, but essentially um, it all says about the same thing. Um, you know, the Hebrew didn't really differ other than really in the, in the rebellion. And then the, the um, inspired author in Hebrews changed a word, which is cool about how the inspired author, it's his word anyway, the Holy Spirit, when he writes in Psalm 95, that generation, and then he writes then in Hebrews 3, this generation, I think, you know, I think that that's really cool to see some of those differences, but um, yeah, I, I don't know if I really answered your question. It's important to me, but I think that it's, it's as long as you're going through the text and you're digging into scripture and understanding it, it's what you need to do. Yeah, um, so she's asking about my teaching style and if it, if it changes. Yes. Um, like if I were going to teach kids this passage, I would probably not be wearing a suit or standing behind a podium predominantly, be a little bit more big, a little bigger personality. I enjoy doing that. You guys could see that too from even my presentation here, but I, I like to use my hands. I like to get engaged with them. And if I was going to teach this in a different setting, I'd maybe have a little more back and forth to some question and answer. Um, more of a discussion-based uh, teaching method. So it just depends on where I'm at. Um, that is a little challenging in a room this size with the, this number of people uh, recording and things like that. So, yeah. Yes? Sure. Yeah, um, my testimony, and I'll, I'll give my wife's brief testimony as well. I grew up in a pastor's home in Eureka, Illinois, just about three hours uh, west of here. And um, I got saved at the age of, I think, four. Um, it's like my first memory in life. Um, and the cool part is my sister, my oldest sister, Jessica, got saved. And then she shared the gospel with my brother, Ben. He shared the gospel with my sister, Serena. She shared the gospel with my brother, Pete. He shared the gospel with me. Um, which is just, I mean, that's a really cool testimony of the, the fact that the gospel was lived in our house. Um, so I grew up in a pastor's home. I was a, a pretty normal kid. I played sports. I went to a, a great public school. Um, and then I, uh, I, my wife grew up similarly in a great um, home. Our siblings are all saved, walking with the Lord. Um, and we, um, we met each other uh, eight years ago or nine years ago uh, through her brother, who was working at my dad's church. And, and uh, we, we started dating. We dated for a year. We're married um, are engaged for a year, and then we got married in 2015. So, um, yeah, that's I, it's a quick, you know, flyover. Marshall, did you have a question? Okay. 
Yes. Zobrist. Yeah. What's that? My, my people? Oh, okay. It's, I understand. Where am I from? Like, where, I'm from Illinois, but um, generations gone by were from Switzerland. It's a Swiss name. Yeah. I'm Swiss-German-Italian, so. My mom, was, my mom was actually Sicilian. She's like half, half Sicilian. My great-grandpa didn't speak any English, so. Yeah. I'm pretty close. He was a booze runner for Al Capone. If that, you know, I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but during Prohibition. That's my people. Did, was there any other questions from that? No. Oh, my wife was, uh, was telling me to, uh, if you didn't notice, I talk with my hands, but if you didn't notice, I have three fingers on one hand. So that'll save any awkward conversations. <laughs> Shaking my hand, you're going to be like, this hand is a little small for the size of this guy. I understand. I know. I'm aware. Um, but I like to have fun with it. It doesn't bother me. So if you have questions about it, I was born with three fingers. So uh, most people, I have a big port wine stain birthmark on my arm. Most people notice that first. But yep. Oh, that was the point. I was normal. I think of myself as aggressively average um, because my brothers are 6'5 and 6'3. One of them was a professional athlete. So like I'm 5'11", I wear a size 11 and a half so I don't get any cheap shoes. I'm just normal. That's what I like. But I have three fingers, so. Guess not normal. But we're all not normal. That's true. I have eight fingers total. I don't do math very well, so that's part of it. Yep. Any last questions? I think, I think it's 10 till, but if anybody's got another question. Or you can talk to, I think we're going to be back in the one of those rooms back there. If you have any other questions or want to get to know us anymore, we'd love to. We, uh, we have loved being here. We've been welcomed uh, by everyone. Um, and so we're just, we're very grateful and we're hopeful uh, to see what the Lord's going to do. So thank you all.